Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. So nuclear power is not a new technology. Electricity generated from a nuclear reactor first took place in 1951, The world went from just one gigawatt of installed capacity in 1960 to over 300 by the late 1980s. And just like nuclear got a bit more attention following the 1973 oil crisis, there are some parallels with how countries are talking about nuclear today in light of the volatility in the oil and natural gas markets. In the 1970s, countries like France and Japan started to invest in nuclear. And today, countries like Germany that have been much more focused on decommissioning nuclear as of late are again discussing the potential that it has to reduce their reliance on oil and natural gas. So what many of us are wondering is, will baseload power make a comeback? Will it displace some of this flexible capacity that we've been using as of late? And will there be a nuclear renaissance? And if there is, how might it look different this time? On today's show, we talk about a wide range of things happening in the nuclear industry. From potential technology breakthroughs with small nuclear power to geopolitical issues impacting the industry. And I wanted to know, will there be enough uranium for an industry expansion should this happen? Well, we get to that. Will the nuclear industry be able to ramp up quickly enough to alleviate the pressure caused by commodities volatility? Well, that too. So joining us today is Chris Godomsky, who is the lead nuclear analyst at BNEF. Those who want to read more of our analysis on nuclear and access our data, you can find it at the BNF Research Report, Nuclear 1H 2022 Market Outlook Unprecedented Opportunity, which is available for subscribers to download at BNF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal, at BNF.com, or on our mobile app. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a full disclaimer that's played at the very end of the show. Additionally, if you want to know when new Switched On podcasts about the future of energy, transport, and sustainability come out, well, make sure to subscribe to this show on whatever podcast player you're listening to us on now. And now let's speak with Chris about nuclear power. Chris, thank you for joining the show today. My pleasure. So we're here to talk about nuclear. You're a resident nuclear expert at BNEF, and things have been shifting more lately, I think, in terms of sentiment and discussion. It's coming up all over again, many times over. This is an established technology in the net zero carbon space that is discussed in spurts and starts. So why, in your opinion, do you think that nuclear is very much back at the center of the conversation? Well, there's a variety of reasons. We'll start with a whole net zero initiative that's going on around the world where people are looking for some options to complement the redeployment of renewable energy. And so my take is that net zero without fission or fusion is just a conversation that involves a lot of hot air. So it is a very complementary technology to renewables. And I think that a very important pathway to achieving net zero is to have nuclear power in a variety of different technologies, replacing the fossil fuels that are now a big part of the generation portfolio. Secondly, we were having an energy crisis in Europe and natural gas supplies are questionable for the foreseeable months. And people are looking at what types of options that they can can look at. Germany has been 
contemplating more coal, if not relying more on coal, building more natural gas. And people are sort of asking, why are you going ahead and sort of tapping some very, very high carbon sources of electricity when you still have several gigawatts of capacity online in Germany that can go ahead and be deployed beyond the scheduled closure in the second half of this year? And then thirdly, there's been a increase in the price of natural gas. And so now nuclear power is viewed to be competitive. And the perfect example of that is the recent legislation that's been passed in the United States in the Senate it remains to be passed in the House, but we expect it to be passed in the House, is that they're offering tax credits for nuclear, provided that there is going to be a need for those nuclear power plants to rely on those tax credits to go ahead and realize or, or become profitable. But I don't think that's going to be the case because the price of natural gas has gone so high in, the, in many markets in the U.S. that those nuclear power plants will not need to have those production tax credits to go ahead and become profitable. And lastly, there is a tremendous amount of innovation that has gone on in the energy sector. We've seen tremendous innovation in renewables the last decade or so. We've seen the whole fracking revolution. And there's been very, very little nuclear innovation. Now, however, we're starting to see nuclear innovation in the form of smaller reactors and advanced reactors that are changing the discussion regarding the economics and safety and acceptability, social acceptability of this technology. As well as some new nuclear potentially coming online, not in the near term, but at least being discussed as something we can build in order to reduce dependency on natural gas. And you had some examples in the research note that actually, you know, looked at it before getting on today that really highlighted that when nuclear power stations are shut down, oftentimes it's natural gas that actually fills that capacity in the background, at least immediately, maybe not necessarily in the long term. So do you see new things being built, given that, you know, some of the forecasts that we're looking at are showing that gas prices could remain high for a few years into the future. And is that enough time for new nuclear in Europe specifically, where this is a real pain point? Do you think that there's enough, I guess, political will and even just time, given how big these projects are, for things to come online in order to meet that demand? Right. So there's two categories of nuclear technology that we can broadly define, one being large gigawatt size reactors. A perfect example would be the Hinkley Point C reactors. They're 1.6 gigawatts apiece that are being built uh, presently. And a decision has just been made by the UK to go ahead and move forward with the Sizewell C reactor. And we'll see if that actually transpires and goes forward. And there are discussions elsewhere in Europe, for example, Poland. Poland has a huge coal problem. They need to go ahead and decarbonize if they are going to remain a member of the EU in good standing. And they're looking at six to nine gigawatts of large reactors. And they're also looking at some advanced smaller reactors that are available on the order of 300 megawatts or less. And so they're examining two sides of the equation. If they go ahead and, and pursue the large reactors, we should see them perhaps come online sometime, I would imagine, in the middle of the 2030s. If they decide to go ahead with the smaller reactors, I think that there is enough momentum building for certain technologies that are available in the 300 megawatt range that could allow them to deliver solutions closer to 2030. But one has to remember that nuclear power is unique in that it's burdened with incredible regulatory oversight and safety concerns and social worries and political opposition. So the pathway to commercial operation of a nuclear power plant, especially in a new market, is a very, very prolonged and it's running a gauntlet to go ahead and get those reactors up and running. So there is promise long-term, but I would imagine that I would be a little bit optimistic if I said that these technologies are going to be ready as to address the immediate concerns of the energy issues in the next two or three years. And recently, nuclear was included in the EU green taxonomy. Do you think that that is a sign that people are warming to it, or do you think it will give any bolster to the industry, or is it maybe less relevant? Of course, we're very pleased to see nuclear recognized for its carbon-free attributes, and I think it's a very positive development. It would certainly be much worse 
if it did not receive uh, that, that categorization. But when you think about building a nuclear power plant, there's there's two separate components. There is a policy initiative, which I'll call pushing of the technology through policy so that it sets the stage for, for acceptance. Then the other side of the equation is uh, the market pull, the market drive to go ahead and actually build nuclear power plants. And you need both. You need a market setting the stage through policy, and you also need recognition by utilities, large industrials, to say we need this type of carbon-free technology to execute appropriately our net zero strategies, our carbon-free strategies. And so it's a push and a pull. You can push a string, but it's much more effective if you pull a string. And therefore, we're looking at market demand, market pull from the nations and utilities in Europe and around the world that recognize how important it is to sort of balance their deployment of renewables complementary with advanced nuclear technologies. Now, you mentioned new projects, and namely in, let's let's start with Poland, which does have a lot of coal-fired power stations, and this could really help them decarbonize their grid. But of those projects, there are a number of contracts in place with the company Rosatom, which is Russian-based. And with current sanctions, are there many other companies, and I guess which companies are those that are kind of poised to potentially take over those sorts of contracts if they can't go ahead with their existing manufacturer? So Rosatom is the leading export of nuclear technology in the world. They have somewhat like 35 projects, reactors under development in their pipeline right now in excess of approximately $130 billion worth of orders. We've seen the first defection as a result of the war in the Ukraine, and that has been Finland. Finland was on schedule to go ahead and start construction of a Russian reactor in Hankivi and it has decided not to go forward. We've also seen some turmoil in one of Russia's big markets, which is Turkey. Turkey's building four reactors over there, and there's been some maneuvering going for where, for there where Russia has changed one of its contractors from a Turkish subsidiary to a wholly owned Russian subsidiary, and that raises a lot of questions regarding the progress of that construction build. They are supposed to have the first reactor operating next year in 2023 in recognition of the 100th anniversary of the, the Turkish public there. And finally, there is some activity going on in Egypt. Egypt just announced in the last two or three weeks that they have started construction on their reactor. That reactor has been under construction, under development, rather under development for several years. So now finally, allegedly, first nuclear concrete has been poured, which signifies the, the start of the technology. But the question then remains, who could fill some of the gaps if there are further questions about some of the other markets among the 35 reactors that may or may not go forward? Russia has a good hold on the nuclear market, the international market in India, where they have built two reactors and they're building two more and planning two more after that. And so the EPRs are also being considered by the Indian government to go ahead and, and build those. But one has to ask the question is that the EPR reactors, along with the Westinghouse AP-1000 reactors, are the most expensive reactors in the world. And mm. why would a country like Poland or a country like India decide to go ahead and build these most expensive nuclear technologies when there are other options that are perhaps less expensive, less risky that they may want to consider? The Koreans offer a success story in that they built four nuclear power plants in the United Arab Emirates very successfully. They're operating several of them, and they're a success story. And perhaps they have demonstrated the ability of Korean companies to operate in a hostile, environmentally hostile environments, very hot in that desert, very, very strenuous working conditions, but to deliver and build on time and more or less on budget. That has not been the case with some of the Western vendors in France, Finland, and the United States. And now apparently also in the UK, where that project, the Hinkley C, is running to some cost overruns. Part of it is to blame for COVID, but it's also that we've lost the large components of the workforce, many of whom have retired. And so we don't have the workforce that can go ahead and build out some of these technologies. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. 
You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned different countries, and I guess they would be then state-owned companies that are involved in this, or are they largely private companies that are filling, I guess, the other 70-ish percent of new build? Well, you have China, India, and Korea leading the charge to new nuclear construction in the world right now, with perhaps just close to or more than 50% of the new reactors being built in the world. So there's a large participation of the state ownership in in all those markets over there. And so I think it's probably a, a very, very necessary component for building these large reactors around the world. That's not the case necessarily with the small reactors that are being developed and being commercialized by General Electric Hitachi, by Rolls-Royce, by Holtec, by New Scale, by TerraPower, which is owned by Bill Gates. So there's a lot of other private sector ventures that are offering smaller technology, less expensive technology in that the cost a couple of billion as opposed to tens of billions and perhaps provides an easier pathway to commercialization than some of the large reactors. Well, so let's talk about that. So you mentioned that small is potentially less expensive. I mean, obviously the project for a small project in theory would be less expensive than for a big project, but the price per gigawatt hour, is it also lower and is it competitive with other technologies like coal or dare I say wind and solar? You know, what are some of the economic benefits and how much cheaper is small nuclear 
compared to some of these larger infrastructure projects? We have tried to do some analysis on this, and we always run into the same problem, is that we don't have a hard case of a a small modular reactor or an advanced nuclear reactor having be built and having very, very good cost data on the construction of those things. So a lot of what the industry relies on is estimates from the manufacturers and vendors saying this is what the technology is going to cost. So we are a little bit wary of using them and projecting how expensive they're going to be. But the General Electric Hitachi reactors are going to be competitive, we believe, with the existing technologies. And it remains to be seen how effective they will be in actually building and and constructing and delivering these technologies. What's a very promising development for that technology is that you have several utilities in Canada opting for that technology, and you have Poland interested in that technology and other countries in in Eastern Europe interested in that technology. And that suggests that you're building up a supply chain and a demand for that technology where that you will be able to reach nth of a kind costs as opposed to first of a kind costs sooner than later. And so that gives promise that maybe not the first one will be competitive, but certainly ones thereafter should be certainly a competitor, closely competitive to some of the existing technologies. Otherwise, it's not a market for them to pursue. Do we have an idea for how long that they will take to come online? So there's a lot of talk about first reactors coming online on 2027, 2028, before the the turn of the decade. Those are very, very optimistic in my personal opinion, but that's the goals that have been set by the U.S. government and the Canadian government to go ahead and reach that 27, 28 timeframe to go ahead and deliver the first commercial reactors. I think that's optimistic, but I think shortly thereafter, we should be able to have those reactors. Now, presumably all the safety concerns and the policy, you know, hoops that you mentioned that one must jump through in order to make sure to get these on the grid probably are not going to be reduced for the small to large. Is that a fair assumption? Because you're still going to have these extended timelines for the policy arm of things to move through in order to be comfortable with all the safety checks on a project, regardless of size? You know, we were operating in a post-Fukushima environment for the last 10, 11 years, and the regulatory bodies, the industry, society has been very, very wary of new nuclear construction, existing operation of new nuclear construction. And we've seen several reactors closed, not necessarily for economic reasons, but also for political reasons and also perhaps for social concerns and and economics as well. So the the nuclear industry needs to respond to the challenge that they need to go build advanced reactors that society is comfortable with, with their safety and economic performance, and that they are an appropriate complement to replace the natural gas and other fossil fuel technologies that society wants to depart in the context of net zero aspirations and goals. So tell me a bit, you mentioned reactors in North America, they're back being discussed and potentially brought online before 2030. And then recently, there's been some big movement in the U.S. in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you just quickly outline where nuclear falls in there and you know what that might mean for this industry. The Inflation Reduction Act offers a, a production tax credit for the nuclear power plants that kicks in if the market rates for electricity are very, very low. We are seeing as a result of very high natural gas prices that the market rates should be significantly higher than when the architects of that bill you know, figured out that this is the level where support will kick in. So I think that those a lot of the nuclear reactors will now operate in the black because of the higher natural gas prices which they're competing. And so there's some hypothesis that there's going to be very, very little production tax credit available to the nuclear power industry because they're now operating against competition, which has much higher rates than they have historically in the past. In the longer term, and, and you know, you're welcome to pick whatever year you think is appropriate, but in, in the medium to longer term... Now, what percentage of overall energy do you think nuclear really will end up occupying? Because we still do, when thinking about decarbonizing the grid, thinking about even at low prices for solar and wind capacity, you still have to create backup options, be that gas, be that battery storage 
And then maybe nuclear, maybe baseload energy in there could provide some buffer for other clean technologies. Do you see kind of a high or a low in terms of where you think nuclear might go? I think I get into the International Atomic Energy Agency provides low points, high points, and there's a huge spread over there between the low point and high point of the future of nuclear, which I don't think is is very, very helpful for utility planners mm. to go ahead and understand how nuclear may fit into their particular generation portfolio. There is a question I asked one time the chairman of the board of a major U.S. utility, which was a big coal burner, and I asked them, what premium does is the utility willing to pay to diversify their generation portfolio? At the time, natural gas build-out was all the rage, and you continue to build out natural gas, but then at one point you need to sort of say, we're overweighted with natural gas, and we mm-hmm. need to consider another type of technology just to balance it. And in fact, if you continue to build out all the natural gas because it was the cheapest option 10 years ago or eight years ago, now you're in, in a troublesome situation because the price of natural gas has, has dramatically increased. So there is going to be a place for lots of renewables, some fossil fuel, and some nuclear technology, whether it's fission or fusion, to go ahead and balance out a utilities portfolio. And so I think that there is a place for nuclear to play a distinct role as a complement to renewables and efforts for utilities, states, countries to decarbonize their electric power sector. Just recently, we've had a very, very promising development in that one of the U.S. advanced reactor companies has signed an agreement with Dow Chemical to go ahead and provide their technology to decarbonize some of the processes that that Dow Chemical has, for which Dow Chemical has a very high carbon footprint. So now we're, besides utilities, we're also seeing industrial companies saying, hey, listen, we need to decarbonize and we would like to sort of embrace nuclear technology, advanced nuclear technology, and we see this as a pathway to help us reduce our carbon footprint going forward. So it's not only utilities where there's a market, but these smaller, safer nuclear power plants offer another opportunity for industrial scale decarbonization as well, which is a very, very positive and interesting development that's just happened in in the last few days. Okay. So you're saying whether it be nuclear fission or fusion, what, what do you mean by that? All the nuclear power plants that operate today are fission reactors where they're splitting heavy metals, okay? And there is, in recent years, increased interest in developing fusion technology, which is joining, fusing together very light elements. And it releases four times as much energy as the fission process. And it has a lot of other advantages. You don't have the legacy spent fuel. You don't have meltdown. And so there's a lot of interest in that technology. And we've seen investment in private fusion companies in 2019 and 2020 hover around $300 million each year. In 2021, we saw that jump to $2.5 billion. And so we have philanthropists, sovereign wealth funds, oil companies, a variety of industrial companies looking at placing a bet on fusion technology because they think that it will have a role in power generation portfolios in the future as well. Just in the last two weeks or so, we've had about $750 million committed to two different fusion companies, private fusion companies in the UK and in the US. And we anticipate this year at least a billion dollars of investment off of the high of last year. But I may be very, very conservative because there's a lot of momentum in fusion technology, which could be a complement as well to the deployment of renewables around the world. So, Chris, how long have you been covering nuclear? I've covered nuclear longer than I like to admit, probably 20 years. I've been involved in producing reports and research in nuclear markets. So in all that time, have you seen this level of interest in the fusion space? No, I, I think fusion... The last few years has seen a tremendous uptick in, 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 in fusion space. And one of the advantages of fusion space is that you can go on to into visit several different fusion companies and see the reactors, see the prototypes, climb on them. And we have a tremendous amount of support from high net worth individuals, companies like Goldman Sachs, Google, the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Singapore, several other companies are all developing or, or pursuing an interest in fusion for, for the future. And it's promising because there are several different technological approaches to fusion. It's just not one type of 
tokamak energy. There's a wide variety of approaches, different approaches, different technologies that can go ahead and deliver that, which is the sign of a very, very healthy industry, that there's lots of approaches and lots of capital starting to flow in. And we anticipate that we'll see a steady stream in fusion coming forward. Fusion is something that also is in a time frame of 2030. Some companies suggesting that they'll have something to show in the second half of this decade. But as far as my thinking is, it's probably 2030 before we'll see a, a viable commercial fusion reactor. I'm hope I'm wrong. I'm hope it's easier. But it's a complex technology, and there's a lot of milestones yet to be accomplished and realized. But the momentum is there. The investor interest is there, and it's something that represents some different advantages than fission, for example. So it's something that's worthwhile pursuing and also has a role to play in the future. And with all of this financing behind it, is it ultimately a race towards a breakthrough technology that will end up being the dominant technology? Or do you think it'll continue to be a varied space in terms of how fusion is approached from a tech standpoint? There's three different major avenues for development of fusion technology. There's the ITER facility, which I visited last week in the south of France, which has 32 or 33 countries involved in, in collaboration to develop this technology. And it's a big, massive in industrial project in the 25 to $30 billion range, but it's a research facility developing that. But this is a sort of an international commitment to go ahead and develop this technology and to share the expertise with everyone who's involved. The second avenue is there's a lot of national programs that are being developed. The Koreans, the Chinese, the Japanese, the UK, the US all have national programs that are developing that are specifically funded to go ahead and prove out fusion technology and learn from the lessons that will be deployed, taken away from the ITER facility. And the third avenue, and one that's probably most interesting, is the private sector development and you know, entrepreneurs, sovereign wealth funds, philanthropists, billionaires are all looking and spending money to commercialize these technologies. And their focus there is not so much on research, but the focus is on a co commercial product with which to generate electricity. So the combination of the three different avenues to commercialization of fusion technology is what I think is very, very exciting. And hopefully we'll have some very pleasant results in the years ahead to report. Before I pivot to another topic, is there anything else you wanted to say on fusion? It's very, very challenging, but a lot of people describe it as the holy grail of energy production. And I'm not saying that that's the case, but it is a very interesting technology, a very, very challenging one. And I hope that all the companies and all the investors will remain focused so that they can deliver a commercially viable project sooner than later. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk a little bit about uranium. Stay on some of the costs here. There's been a fair amount of volatility in uranium, and we as a business do look at commodity prices because they really underpin a lot of the industries that we're talking about in, in other respects. So it's, you know, intrinsically linked. What has been going on with uranium recently? So if you go back to the 2005 or so, uranium was trading close to $150 a pound. That was following the passage of the Energy Policy Act of 2005 in the U.S., which provided some incentives for nuclear power. And at the time, there was a lot of financial speculation, interest in that market, and drove up the price significantly higher. <laughs> then came along came Fukushima, and Fukushima sort of tanked the market because everybody is now worried that nuclear power is going to be out as a result of this, this huge, ter terrible accident over there. In the meantime, though, before Fukushima happened and after the high price in the 2005 period, there was a tremendous amount of increase in uranium and many, many companies started additional mining efforts, started new mines, increased production of mines. And so what happened in 2011, when the demand for uranium slowed significantly and the prospect of new build tempered somewhat, you had a lot of production that was coming online. So the uranium market was oversupplied since 2011. Many of the Japanese utilities, for example, were on a take-or-pay contract. So they had contracted for long-term uranium purchases, but they weren't operating the nuclear power plants. You went from 54 nuclear power plants operating in, in Japan on March 1st of 2011 to none of them operating a year later. And so they still had to buy and commit to purchasing that uranium. So you had an oversupply in the marketplace, which has been sort of now winded down, and it drove down the price of uranium to less than $30 at the beginning of 2021. In the middle of 2021, we saw some financial speculation interest come into the marketplace and made some long-term purchases of uranium for a speculative basis, and that drove the price up to nearly 50 bucks in the, in the middle of October of last year. It traded back and forth between 50 and 40 bucks for the next several months. And then with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uranium spiked and went up to nearly over $60. And that was a recognition that perhaps because of all the energy sanctions that were being talked about, there was some anticipation among financial investors that, you know, uranium would be a good commodity to hold on to for the future because we anticipate that this war could drive a lot of interest in purchasing and deployment of more nuclear reactors and consumption of uranium. 
that fell off after middle of April to below $50. And it's traded in a range in the high 40s ever since then at 48.75, I think I saw earlier today. And so there is a increased doubling of the price of uranium over the last year, but it's not as high as it was a couple of months ago. New mines are coming online. There is going to be more demand for uranium coming forward, but it's a very interesting market to follow. And I'm sort of surprised that it's more or less gone back and forth in the high 40s for a while. But that makes sense because more uranium markets, mines are coming online and production is increasing and inventories have been reduced. There was a significant amount of uncovered demand for uranium, meaning that utilities did not buy the uranium that they needed to buy prior to the war in, in Ukraine. And so that provided the impetus for, for higher uranium prices and optimism among uranium producers that there was going to be some hope and improved conditions for the uranium producers and miners around the world. Quite possibly a basic question, but how difficult is it to extract this uranium and essentially, you know, with maintaining a supply and demand balance, let's say small-scale nuclear goes really well and actually these projects end up taking off at some point in the next couple of decades. Is it possible that we will have enough uranium or are there very limited supplies? No, I don't think that there is a concern that there's not going to be enough uranium to supply the immediate needs of the, of the nuclear power industry in the foreseeable future. Some of the advanced reactor technologies are much more efficient in burning up the uranium and therefore will use the uranium more efficiently so they'll have more electrical generation for the same amount of uranium as started in, in the fuel. So I, I think in the near term, there is perhaps rightfully so will be increased in the price of uranium, but electricity generated from natural gas is dependent 60-70% from the price of natural gas. The price of nuclear power electricity is dependent perhaps maybe you know, 10 to 14% on the price of uranium. So we can upstand a significant increase in the price of uranium without having a drastically negative effect on the price of, we're not going to near term, we're going to be running out of uranium. And secondly, one has to recognize that whereas the price of in nuclear generated electricity. So ending a bit like the way we began, but instead of focusing in on why everyone else is talking about nuclear, what are some of the things that stand out to you? One of the most important things that I see right now happening in the market is really very interesting is the sea change in the public perception of nuclear power. You have three stalwart states, nations in Germany, California, and Japan, which were very much opposed to, to nuclear power. And we're seeing to, to see that opposition to the nuclear power being sort of reduced or shelved for the time being, whether or not it's a permanent or temporary uh, situation is hard to say. Germany, in the wake of Fukushima, was committed to closing all of its nuclear power plants by 2022. In our analysis, we suggested that they will continue to go ahead and close those reactors at the end of this year. But there's been a tremendous amount of opposition to doing so because they are safe and we can continue using them and they'll help reduce the burden of higher electricity prices on the German people by keeping them operating for a while. If you have a situation where those reactors are, in fact, allowed to operate beyond the end of 2022, it's a sea change in the thinking going on in, in Germany in that all of a sudden we need to have these reactors to hedge against the crisis of the higher energy prices. And good energy policy involves not only delivering clean energy, but delivering clean energy at a reasonable price. And nuclear can play a very, very effective role in doing so. The situation in California is very much the same, where there was a political decision and closed the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plants, the last two nuclear power plants in the state of California. And it was done because the decision was made, perhaps politically, I don't think so economically, but the decision was made to close those nuclear power plants and to go all in on renewables and other technologies. And so now there's a lot of um, question marks because there's been policy coming from the US government suggesting that we'll provide some funds for those utilities who operate nuclear power plants who are thinking about perhaps closing them. And that's a very significant 
anti-nuclear state, which perhaps has uh, going to rethink the use of nuclear power, not only for power generation, but also for desalination of water. That plans for that nuclear plant, only two reactors there. Initial plans were for six reactors, one of which was entirely going to be dedicated for desalination of water. And in Japan, you went from 54 reactors to zero reactors to about 10 operating reactors, nine or 10 operating reactors now. And they're being burdened tremendously by the high natural gas prices. And so there is an effort to go ahead and speed the return of several of those reactors to generating electricity to put less pressure on the pricing of electricity in in the country uh, in Japan. So those are three markets which are pretty much against nuclear power, which are now softening their, their stance on that. If you go back a year, the Indian Point nuclear power plant north of New York was closed down and output from that nuclear power plant is largely being replaced by natural gas. And we can see now that the price of natural gas has gone through the roof, making the price of electricity for people in the New York metropolitan area who are, some, who are customers of Con Ed has increased significantly. And that's not good energy policy to have it's such a, a large jump, plus the emissions are gone up significantly as well. Just this morning in the middle of a heat wave in New York, there were announcements that there's perhaps brownouts in parts of Brooklyn that are going to exist today in the, the 90 plus heat that is going through the area. I think people are starting to realize that nuclear has a role to play in electrical power generation in, in certain markets or in many markets. And we just see a lot of interest in there. So this, for a variety of reasons, net zero aspirations, COP26, the war in Ukraine, uh, high natural gas prices, blisteringly hot summer, all of these things are, are combining to get people to consider that perhaps you know, we should not throw nuclear technologies out the window because they have a role to play. Of course, beyond the things that we've already addressed today, and what are some of the other things that are happening in the industry that you just want to make sure that everyone knows about? One of the things that the nuclear industry has to respond to this unprecedented opportunity that exists in front of it right now. The nuclear industry has fumbled the ball on a few occasions. And there are several examples in the U.S. and in Europe that the construction time to build the, the nuclear power plants in the U.S. approaching over 10 years mm -hmm. and the actual start and stopping of a, two AP-1000 projects in South Carolina a few years back. I mean, the perception that the nuclear power industry has is that they can't build and manage large projects effectively and that the label that's a placed on nuclear power is that they're uneconomic. You know, in Europe, you have projects that are under construction since 2005 in Finland, that reactor has just come online, still some operating challenges there. In France, they started building that reactor, their EPR in 2007. They're still a year or two away from getting that operating. And so none of these reactors have um, good, solid economic performance associated with their construction. That is something that the nuclear power industry needs to change. The cost of generating, of building nuclear power plants is much lower in a place like China because they build six of them at a time at one location and they have a trained workforce and, and they can very effectively deliver significantly less expensive nuclear power. That has to change in Western Europe and in the United States. We need to proceed and build nuclear power plants and deliver them and generate electricity without the economic nightmare labor attached to them. And that's a very, very important thing. And I think that the new technologies represent several safety advantages. They're smaller. Some of them don't operate with pressure vessel because they're operating at one atmosphere. And so therefore, they, they, it, it makes a lot of sense for some of these reactors to, to go ahead and deliver and, and displace some of the coal technology that is, that is still operating in this country. So it's a viable pathway going forward. The nuclear industry has to re respond and rise to the occasion and deliver. And until they do so, then they'll have this very negative connotation applied to them. And we have seen more coal-fired power stations come on as a result of the really high natural gas prices at the moment. And do you think that that is ultimately the real displacement opportunity for nuclear in the space that it occupies? I think that in decarbonization of the electrical power sector in the United States and Europe, 
is going to require replacing the baseload technology that is now currently supplied by coal plants and natural gas plants. And I think that that's the opportunity, the sweet spot for the nuclear power industry to address in the power generation sector. Providing industrial process heat to industry is another sweet spot for the nuclear power industry to go ahead and address. And we're already seeing some developments with Dow Chemical partnering with X Energy to go ahead and deliver products to allow for nuclear industrial process heat to, in order to decarbonize. And there's also a lot of talk of using nuclear to produce hydrogen. And it's something that may make some sense in, in certain specific areas, industrial complexes where the physical requirements of, of storing and transporting hydrogen do not become prohibitively expensive. So if you can have a nuclear power plant produce the hydrogen and deliver it quickly to the market without extensive storage and transport costs, it also makes a lot of opportunity for there. So nuclear technology is a very, very dense technology. There's a lot of power in the atom and splitting the atom, fusing atoms. And so it's something that is it's a, a very technology and it has issues like many other technologies has issues, then the nuclear industry has to sort of rebrand itself to a certain extent saying that we not only have a carbon-free technology, but we have a carbon-free technology that employs a lot of people that is safe and can complement the increasing deployment of renewables. So Chris, thank you so much for coming and getting us up to speed on so many different things that are happening all over the world in the nuclear space. And I know each one of these you could probably spend, you know, an hour show drilling down on. So thank you for taking us through this crash course and sharing with us today. Great. Well, happy to do so at any time. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at cuttereconomicforum.com.